0: You can't necessarily think yourself into the answers. You have to create space for the answers to come to you.
1: You have this amazing introduction. You say the West is dying and we are killing her. That American dream has been replaced by mass packaged mediocrity porn, encouraging us to revel like happy pigs in our own meekness. Yo, that rips.
0: You know, all the best of the books are like your, messed up and here's like nonfiction about how you can be less messed up
1: there's just not that many people who have the courage to reach beyond consensus and go explore new ideas
0: i'm like cool i'll start watching netflix when i've read the whole of human history like it was
1: <laughs> reva why does rilke's poetry resonate with you so so deeply
0: the guy writes about ecstasy um, and like that was kind of become corrupted now because like in the past, you think about religious ecstasy or spiritual ecstasy, right? And In yoga, you have these phrases now, but Rilke saw beauty in everything. Like he describes, he's like, I'm looking at a door, or a chair, or a flower. I see the ecstasy of everything. He sees in one little thing a representation of all things that are beautiful. And um, I don't know many writers that can do notice in such, with such subtlety, detail that is provoked such beauty so it's like, he's not appealing to vast heavens. He's just noticing things around you and relooking looking them from first principles and saying like how beautiful life is. It's just very moving. It, I
1: think it deeply resonates with some people, not with everybody, but yeah. if you're an ecstatic person, then yes. Well, it's funny that you talk about the beauty and subtlety. I've been thinking a lot about the word vanilla and people see vanilla as a bad thing, but actually vanilla is a very subtle flavor. Yeah. And I think it speaks to sort of the sensory overload of the modern age. Where something that does have that subtlety, it's like people don't even have the receptors to appreciate how contoured something can be in these very subtle ways.
0: Yeah, I went to an Underworld concert last night. You remember Underworld? I don't know. Like, I don't know what year. What year was Underworld? Two thousand. Okay. They're in the Hackers soundtrack. That's like how they got the most famous. The Are they like Nirvana? Movie. No, it's more electronic music. Okay, like, I miss it's kind of a mix between like Prodigy and Radiohead is where I'd place it. Cool, love Radiohead. When we saw them perform last night, and it's like two older guys with no stage, right? But the guys performing have such vibe that they hold all your attention just with gentle body movements. Like mm-hmm. he was such an incredible dancer, not like a cheesy way. It's electronic music, but he held everyone's attention because it was as if the music flowed through him. And you compare that to something like Katy Perry. She has like (laughs) 75, I said this to Eric thing. it's like 75 actors like waving. It's like Universal Studios in all of her sets, right? Because I think to actually strip that back and have people like Taylor Swift and stuff like this like perform songs, we've lost the ability. Like people have such a short attention span that they need something so theatrical. And last night there was such elegance in this guy's performance, I couldn't stop thinking about it. There's like no set, but you just, everybody's like hypnotic. Everyone was so captivated by it. But now everything is just, shocking because we don't have we don't have good attention span anymore
1: yeah i think this comes back to writing in the way that we don't read things as much repetitively you know like when most people think about reading they think about oh how many books did you read this year reading the news but like if you think of the greeks they memorize poems it was funny i was in a bible study and there's a guy named jimmy and jimmy's understanding of scripture is just like next level from everybody else and he's a smart guy but I was like, something's different. I said, Jimmy, like, how do you know the Bible so well? And he goes, you know what I do that no one else does? And what? He goes, I memorize entire chapters of the Bible. And when yeah. you memorize chapters, it takes a few months, but you really understand how things are structured and you understand the subtleties that almost get revealed to you through repetition. And I was like, ha, there, there's something there.
0: Well, not even just that. I mean, I totally agree. But another thing is that you learn more as you get older, which allows you to unlock things in text that you might have missed before. Hmm. And I think we've had this conversation previously, which is that I've probably read Atlas Shrugged like every two years for like 15 years, right? And I look back and I wish that I'd understood it better as a teenager, but you had to have the uh, the wisdom and the experiences to unlock the context of the things that she was referring to. So mm-hmm. as you get older, if there's books that moved you when you were younger, it's like worth going back and rereading them to see like what nuggets you couldn't possibly have had, you know, comprehension for when you were a little bit more naive. So I do read books regularly that uh, I've read before because I, kn- I have placed in them some value that there are lessons already that I want to learn from and
1: perhaps more that I just haven't discovered yet. Why is her writing so captivating to you?
0: Um, I think, well, her and I, I've started reading Robert Palaszczuk, who I also like in the same brand of mine, but she takes philosophy and instead of making it like, here's an argument as to why you should subscribe to X, um, she puts the characteristics that she values in characters. And by doing that, you see the embodiment of those characters and their actions in a way that I think is more in, you know, you can invoke the um, a much deeper and richer experience of what those qualities might look like in real life by witnessing them as characters in fiction, as opposed to like a very logical, like, you know, matter of fact, philosophical treatise. So I just think it brings alive the references of character that if you just read like, you know, humility or greatness, it's you read the word, you know what it means. But if you describe it in a character and you see those actions, it becomes much richer and much more alive. So she took, you know, a complicated philosophy and embodied it in in a way that anybody could resonate with. And you see, you know, your friends and characters, right? Things I said this before, like mm-hmm. sometimes when people piss me off, I'm like, they remind me of Lily and Ridden, right? Like. So she gave you that framework She's like i think understand what she was pointing to in a
1: much deeper way. I'm always amazed at the percentage of people who i admire how they think, i admire how they reason, i admire how they move through the world, how many of them studied philosophy. So what's going on with the disconnect of oh philosophy is a useless major and oh my goodness there's something so core here that isn't just something that has to do with the actual ideas but something about how to reason and how to work with ideas and almost configure them like rubik's cubes or something
0: yeah i i remember when i applied for my philosophy undergrad and i my you have to, i don't need to use in america but in england you have to write a cover letter that's like to the university saying like why they should recruit you into that program and i opened my um letter to university college london saying that using bertrand russell's definition of philosophy which is that philosophy is a no man's land between theology and science, which I really liked as like an answer, mm. right? It's like, it's asking questions that lots of other groups are trying to answer but this, the question formation. And I think that frustrated me about my philosophy degree is that I found just studying the history of the questions less interesting than trying to figure them out. So contemporary academic philosophy becomes like, can you recite Descartes' questions or, you know, and what I wanted to do was like, okay, well, how do we go about solving this? And then I was like, no, no, we leave that to the other realms. So now, actually, Oxford University in England, you do philosophy and they really recommend it. I don't know if it's compulsory to do it alongside a science. So you do like philosophy and physics. I mean, that would have been my dream course, like philosophy and physics, like what you ask the questions, you go think about them. That sounds great. But I was like learning about Descartes and like Cartesian dualism. And I thought to myself, isn't it a bit redundant to study this and not talk to neurologists or psychiatrists or like other people from other fields? So just the history of philosophy, philosophy just being the history of questions isn't as exciting as people actually trying to answer those questions. And I think that's very, like, there's not many examples of people doing that now. People are not putting forward new ideas they're just, you know, analyzing previous ones. So when everyone takes a risk, I get really excited.
1: What's going on there? You said we're in a creativity recession, which is a good little way to phrase that.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, it's... It's one of those things I think it's hard to unpack. There's not like one simple causation. Uh, I think s- the education system has, the Overton window for education has become smaller and smaller to the point where like we're basically taking children and tying them to sort of like adult balls on SSRIs, right?
1: I say docile and delirious drones <laughs> drugged into oblivion, dishing out ADHD pills like Halloween candy.
0: Yes, exactly that. Um, so there's one aspect which I think is, uh, you know, people care a lot about freedom and agency in adults without realizing that people lose it as a child. Um, so that's one direction. The other thing is that I think there's a lot of cultural nihilism because there's lots of negative messaging going on in society, like we're always close to the world endings of climate change and we're always with the threat of war or something else. And in those, in that period of keeping people scared, also it's like hard to take risks or be creative because you're trying to be protective, like you're trying mm-hmm. to protect and be defensive.
1: You're making this point about protectionism and how that hurts creativity i think that there's something to a short time horizon and a lack of beauty what is the point of making something beautiful if the world's going to end in 10 years like why would you even take on that challenge 100 percent,
0: right like you changed the concept of time and people's lives and you put in this place this extreme fear now why did people build such beautiful churches 500 years ago they had shorter life expectancies than we did, right? Right, Which is crazy. But how people thought of themselves with inside like structures of the church and what eternal means, like there was different reasoning of like, there was lifetime when you were alive and then there was your legacy. And your legacy was, if not more valuable than your life because your life was so fragile and people died from sickness and ill health. Now people are really healthy. But they're full of fear, even though they live three times as long as anyone in the 16th century. But in that culture of, of like fear and, thinking that bad things are going to happen, it's like, okay, we're going to move towards hedonism and short-term rewards. Because what's the point of spending... It's crazy now to think of spending 50 years building and building. I mean, it probably takes that long in San Francisco now anyway. So, I mean, the government now makes it, but in the past, it used to just be so beautiful. Like That's why it would take such a long time. But... You know, it was beyond themselves. Like, you know, I'm going to the Vatican next next week. It's not like everyone who worked on these projects was like, well, I need to see it within an ROI of my lifetime. It was building together towards higher purposes and, and legacy and divine and, and something that I talk about in my film, which is like faith. What is faith? And faith is an integrity, I think, so val to to some level of values. Like it's 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 a personal responsibility to something. Um, and it's and it's noble. And right now it's 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 also fast and um, like you said, like a very short term, very short term.
1: Well, I think the faith thing is deep because at some level trying to achieve anything great, you can't reason your way into some justification for wanting to do that. It's almost even hard to quantify the outer limits of beauty. Something that is beautiful, you just know it's beautiful, but you can't be like, you can't look at the Duomo in Florence and be like, Oh, that's beautiful i can like explain like the roi economic value like for me so much of what faith has given me in terms of pursuing something beautiful is just like my relationship with god and just trying to please him and having that be my only justification and nothing in the material realm as something that's pushing me or driving me
0: yeah well i unfortunately think you're a very rare case (laughs) if there was a lot more of that energy in the world that people would probably make more beautiful things but to the point of the duomo in florence so my mom, my mother, who you know has the crazy researcher gene, whatever that I have, is currently studying Vasari's Lives of the Artists, like the account of like 16th century Italian artists. And one of the ones she's studying is Masaccio, and his entire life, pretty much, spent like forty. I'm pretty sure it's Masaccio. spent forty years just making the door of the Duomo of Florence. Like, imagine if you said this to someone now, right? Even carpentry and stuff like that isn't recognized as, like, a beautiful skill anymore. Like, now everything is machine manufactured and it's come from somewhere. Like, we don't really value, like, beautiful words, beautiful. Imagine saying someone in this present age, the like, guy spent 40 years just making a door. I remember, like, what a joker, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it sounds so far-fetched. There's something so beautiful in that that he was like, I want to get this little thing. I have this little opportunity to deliver beauty on something that's going to last for it. Hundreds, if not thousands of years. And I'm going to put my everything into it. There's a level of formality of like showing up to the craft that we're really missing now because we're surrounded by cheap and short term things from furniture to like media. Everything is cheap and fast. He spent 40 years making a door and now everyone queues up to go see it because it's so beautiful. Did he not win? I think he won.
1: Yeah. He got what he wanted. I mean, I think you see it writing and how many things are sort of mass produced and clearly books as business cards. And the writing that I think both of us admire. I mean, I know that you walked Nietzsche's trail. He wasn't trying to make a business card. He wasn't trying to have an ROI. He was like a crazy guy who saw something about the nature of reality and needed to express it. Yeah, and You'd go on these walks and have these crazy ideas and then had this very aphoristic style that was N equals one. And I would also say, um, I heard this story about Zadie Smith. She's just not on the internet because she doesn't want... To even hear what her critics think. And I just think that's that that's cool. awesome. Yeah, like, that's I'm cool. just increasingly thinking I'm way too connected. Like, the feedback loop is too fast.
0: Yeah, I, I would almost say that the best thing I've ever done in my life was, like, in the last two years, just completely disengaged from the zeitgeist. Yeah. Like, I, I was talking with my boyfriend about this. Like, I, I haven't, we looked at the top 50 grossest grossing films of the last decade. I hadn't seen it, i seen like one of them, maybe. In terms of TV shows, like from Mad Men to so any cultural references, you've all these things I've heard about. I've never even consumed a second. I've never had. A, I've never watched Netflix. Um, I do. I go on Twitter, is where I kind of get news, but I even kind of disengaged from that about a year ago, and it puts me in a state of like some fear because like I don't always know exactly what's going on in the world, but I it will get to me eventually. Yeah. But I also am so um, perplexed by how open people are to just consuming the media that is around them passively. I'm like, I'm very selective what I put inside my mind, right? Like, I'm like, cool, I'll start watching Netflix when I've read the whole of human history. Like, listen, <laughs> I'm like I'm really, I'd rather read the Odyssey a hundred times than watch Netflix. Like, I am not looking for passive entertainment. And I think that's a um, like a skill or like a, not a defense, but it's like some kind of limit that people are not putting on themselves enough. Like, I'm so surprised by how many of my, you know, smart, intellectual friends come home and they just zone out, it's like TV shows. I just can't think of anything worse. Um, like, for me, like, it has to have something that like I'm, like, I I want I have so many things I want to learn. Like, I don't want to just be entertained, right? Um, and I watched the Barbie movie and wrote that review. And I, I remember, like, watching the Barbie movie and thinking to myself, like, this would be such an interesting way for me to understand the zeitgeist. And halfway through, I was like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. so confused. Like, I hear people's conversations, and I think, and now that I'm out of the zeitgeist, I can't place all the conversation topics anymore.
1: But it's been great. I think it's a very valuable skill. Something that I've really come to appreciate is just the value of deep reading. And that sounds so trite, but basically I wrote a piece a few years ago called Against 3X Speed, which was basically a condemnation of this idea of like, I got in the car with somebody and he, you know, sometimes like the car will turn on and then the thing that they were listening to will automatically play. And he was listening to an audiobook at like 5X speed. And I was like, (laughs) dude, normally listen to books like this he goes yeah yeah." what i do is i've figured out it's better to like listen to it two or three times but then i listened to the entire thing i was like dude that's crazy and i just gave me so much anxiety i was like i'm not gonna do that and then back to the the philosophy point i had some friends who when i was living in new york they were at columbia and i took uh they invited me to a class and the entire semester was on the like 300 pages of Max Weber, like basically all about the, the Protestant work ethic. And I was like, this is interesting. I never realized you could go so deep in something. Yeah. And now I've ended up all the way on the other side of the barbell. Like the only book that I read is the Bible. And I just spend every day trying to like understand one little section of the old Testament and the new Testament. And like, I read it and then I read Uh, one study bible the ESV and then I read this like biblical theology study bible so I read two study bibles get the etymologies and stuff like that and then I go based on that I journal on what do I need to know who do I need to be what do I need to do and I do it so cool every day every day and then me and my friend Brent we text each other what we will do and I've been doing it for like six months and it's changed my life more than any other learning habit and it's not even close like, it's changed with the love of my heart, not just my mind, yeah. which has been beautiful.
0: Yeah, I, I have some friends who've done similar kind of in-depth biblical study, and I am so envious Like I want to do that. That is, sounds amazing. And uh, when I first applied to university, I applied to do philosophy and theology because I wanted to study kind of New Testament manuscripts, which is something I've been thinking about for, like, the last year. But I was trying to understand, and you had an amazing tweet. Do you remember you had a tweet, like, um, it was, like, a couple of years ago where you said, it's crazy like how people don't study or read the bible considering the fact yeah. it's been around for a really long time it's had such a huge effect like regardless of your faith yeah like there's this book that for some reason even if you don't think about is shaped human history especially in the west and i was talking to a friend saying she said that her friend her other friend's eight-year-old child asked her who jesus christ was and I was like wow that's really crazy to me because like as an eight-year-old like i i mean i went to a christian school so Just to far fetch this and it's so out of the zeitgeist that people don't know. But, uh, you know, studying these texts, like, there's a reason they stood the test of time. Like, people found something. It's the most read read book in the world. Like, the the Bible is. Like, maybe people should consider it. Like, it's the fact that that's like
1: a radical position is crazy. It's insane because, you know, if you ask some intellectual, right, you're like, hey, what do you think of Plato? They're like, and say they haven't read it. They'll be like, oh, I, you know, I haven't read Plato. And they'll be really embarrassed. Have a read Nietzsche be really embarrassed. Have a read Kant be very embarrassed. Have't read the Bible and they'll be like proud to have yeah. not read the Bible. I have resisted such dogma. Yeah. I am in the age of reason now, and yeah, I think that's crazy.
0: The biases around personal life've been thinking are really insane. Father, you can disregard a text that has been so foundational to all of Western thought, even just from a self explanatory anthropology thing like why is our culture the way it is like maybe you should read his, people should read historical texts. That's why I don't have time for Netflix. Like, yes, I need to like <laughs> read the Bible intensely. I did actually read the Bible a lot when I was a kid. Like, I didn't come from a Christian family, but I was interested in religious texts. And I read a bunch of the Bible when I was younger. And then again, when I was in my university degree, and I was kind of like shaped, shaping myself as an atheist, especially during university. And like, as I got older and changed my views on that, I have started to pick up reading religious texts, but that's what led me into studying the manuscript. So like, I've just gone the other way and like now the history of the manuscripts in the Bible, which has like become a recent obsession, as opposed to like reading the Bible. It's just like, I'm not probably doing the thing that's going to give me any wisdom. I'm just finding the conspiracies about the manuscripts. But it's so fascinating. It's like, I don't know,
1: more people should be reading it. Please tell me about those conspiracies.
0: Well, I, when I was uh, like thinking about what I should work on next after the pathogen essay, I wanted to see something very different. And I started thinking about history just as a field. I was like, well, well you know, History is one of those weird feels because it sounds so um, soft and friendly. Like, oh, history. But history is kind of like the foundation of propaganda. Like, how people define the past is how people place themselves in the present. And, like, we all know, like, the winners often write, the vic- the victories, they-, they go back and, like, the ultimate power is to be able to, like, change civilization or kill people or, like, whatever, and also be able to, like, hide and done. Like, the, the point is everyone wants to look like the good guys. So, you know, if the allies are... If things different, things have been had different in World War II, like it would have been looked very different now, right? In terms of how we think about history. But uh, the question I asked myself was like, okay, let me think of like a book that has been so foundational. And it was around the time when you wrote your tweet as well, because I was reading about my old notes earlier. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to study the New Testament, I want to read the oldest New Testament. And that's how this started, right? I was like, what's the oldest New Testament? And the oldest New Testament, there's lots of fragments of the New Testament in. But the oldest claiming New Testament, like entire copy um, codex, the Codex Sinaiticus, which was discovered in the late 19th century by a biblical researcher called Const- Constantine Tischendorf, which is meant to be from the 4th century. Okay. It's meant to be one of Constantine's 50 Bibles that he sent around to like, like redistribute Christianity. So like, it's meant to be one of Constantine's 50, Bible, 50 New Testaments, and it's written in a codex. All the other all the other manuscripts were written on scrolls. And when I started looking into this story, the story just got weirder and weirder. And it just fascinated me. Like I've, I've probably written 80 pages on it so far. Like I don't even know what it is. Like I'm like, who is going to read my like deep dive of like the New Testament manuscript? I'm like, you will, I will. Yeah. David will, you'll read it, so it's okay. But um, the story is just crazy because Constantine Tischendorf, the re- researcher, claims he found the manuscript in Mount Sinai monastery in Egypt, which is the oldest continuous Christian monastery in the world. He says that he rescued the oldest Bible and oldest New Testament copy from monks who are using it as for, for the fire, like throwing it into the fire and using it to like bustle the fire. Now that story is a little weird because it's a beautiful text. It's made on parchment, not on papyrus. It's very expensive. It's got beautiful like manuscript. No, you know, old school monastery would use this as like fire paper, right? So the story goes a little fishy and then you look into it more and it's like, well, they didn't even burn, even if it was like heretical text, people don't, like Christians and Jews, like they don't burn the text, they bury them. Like think about the Dead Sea Scrolls, think about if it's heretical, you bury it to put it next, near to a cemetery. So I started doing all this investigative research into the Testament manuscripts. And like, I don't know. I just don't think that version is from the fourth century as it is claimed. So my argument in this is that this original New Testament full manuscript is not actually from the 4th century. It's probably been doctored in the 19th. That's not to refute Christianity. That's just one version I think the guy was trying to get glory and say, like, I found the oldest, right? But there's a lot of weird things that happen around religion because at the time, religion was politics, right? So
1: Well, I think we're actually getting to the core of a lot of your writing and creative process, which is you are willing to ask questions that other people are willing to ask. and I mean, I just think naturally you're just drawn to these super esoteric places it's i mean the way that i think about you and people like you is like if the world of ideas has these guardrails or like bumpers at a bowling alley like you just kick them over you break them in half and you just keep going you know
0: yeah I, well the this essay is like it's like i went in i just thought i'm gonna read the new testament then i thought i'm gonna ask myself what is the oldest new testament and then i thought to myself, but how do they discover this and then it's, I don't even go in with like a set plan of what I'm going to write about. I just wanted to study the New Testament. I haven't even got to studying the New Testament because I've gone so far just the manuscript history of the New Testament. But it's by doing this kind of like free flow research, which people don't really value anymore. It's like, you to know, do a PhD program that like you have to solve this like little niche question within a scientific paradigm or within a sociological paradigm. And like, it's just so fun to go in and not have a goal, right? I was like, I'm just going to, I find this area interesting. And I'm going to see what gets uncovered. And often like, no one's really been doing that. So if you just read the story of the Codex Sinai on Wikipedia, like, it sounds a little fishy, right? Yeah. Like, if you actually go look at it. But how many times have people gone like, well, I'm just going to go look at the primary sources on this, right? And maybe like a couple. I actually found one professor, like his name is Daniel Wallace, is a theologian professor and he runs the center of study of New Testament manuscripts and like I'm really bonded with him because I think oh you're the person <laughs> who's found it. I've been donating to his manuscript center for a while because like they're the only people doing this research. But how fun. It's like I feel like a investigative journalist, right? But like I don't know what I'm looking for. I just keep going until I find stuff and then I just keep poking and keep poking and, and it's like I find things I'm like, oh hurrah, I found something.
1: How do you structure your life to be able to do this?
0: Well not well. <laughs> I go through phases. Like I, I don't know if it's the same for you. But for people who write, and I, you know, I haven't written much for the last year because I've been distracted and working. But when I go through like research phases, I pick up something that I'm studying, and I can't do anything else. I, I like. I know everyone says that you should do everything in moderation. I like write a little bit every day, but I just get fanatical, and I have to study whatever I'm looking at, and I can't think about other things. It's like I become obsessive. When I wrote my pathogen essay, that was kind of six months of me just only thinking about pathogens for a really long time. yeah. And when I started doing the Christianity, thinking about the man- manuscripts, I was only thinking about that. And I was like planning my trips to go to Mount Sinai. Like I only wanna go on trips that are related to my research. And then something sometimes happens and breaks me out of it, right? Like family thing or I have to work. And then I have to wait until I have the freedom to get back into that space. And to me, it's my happiest place. Like I go to my house in Vegas, I sit at my desk, I write, so I have all my notes on the wall, like a, like a crazy person. And I just go full in and it's such an energy rush. It's like taking It's Like I just, I'm not on in anything, but I just get so excited I can't sleep. It's like its like I get manic creative energy. And then sometimes it gets tired and it goes away. But I try to not, I used to, when I was younger, try and force it, I'd be like, why can't it come now? Or like, why can't I do it here and then? And I've just learned as I've got older to say like, hey, it comes cyclically. And sometimes you can concentrate on it and sometimes you can't, but don't put pressure on yourself, right? Like let it just happen when it happens. And, uh, and inside that freedom, I think it's easier to get into flow state.
1: This idea of the muses shows up in Greek poetry, shows up in the kind of art you see in Florence. What do you think the muse is pointing at? It's repetitive enough that it's pointing at something deep and fundamental about the human condition. Yeah, I don't
0: know like so that word, what's the etymology of the word genius again? Was it something to you like, there's a genie who like comes and like turns you into a genius? Yes, yes, that's yes, right. right, right. It's the same kind of thing. It's like some sort of divine inspiration, some sort of esoteric, special, metaphysical inspiration where you deliver the message and it gets kind of given to you. Like Some of my favorite writers, and I can't remember which one I was reading recently who said this, was like, I didn't write this. I just like, it just channeled through me in one go. And when I go back and read my old essays, I'm like, how did I know these things? <laughs> I'm just like, I don't even recognize who I was when I write it. And it's not that we're like, but I think you change mind state. Like you go into a different state of mind. I think every writer gets like this. I can tell it's in Rilke when I read Rilke's poetry. I see he gets into that ecstatic curiosity phase, and I know even from the words that he's using what he's pointing to out of feeling, which is like the ecstasy of aloneness and discovery, discovery in detail. And uh, I think some people feel it, and some people don't. And when I when people know what I'm talking about. They're resonating where we do it. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's probably like some sort of, I'm sure some psychiatrists would say like we have sort of imbalance. Like we should be doing regimented writing <laughs> between six and eight in the morning before we go to the gym. And then we should be like drinking a shake. Right? But like, truth is like everyone has their own writing style like you shouldn't put pressure on yourself to do any different. Like I, I th- I'm 34 now, like I'm not going to try and force myself to write every day. It just doesn't work.
1: Well, this is one of the things that has really changed my, my creative process since becoming a believer is I now put so much stake in the idea of revelation, right? I mean, the, the the New Testament ends with a literal book of revelation that is revealed to John. And it's just yeah. like, this is how the world is going to end. And I have very much tweaked my calendar, tweaked my life, given myself free time where I can just sit and just listen to God. And I sometimes feel like God just airdrops me clear ideas. And... Rick Rubin says the same thing. I think that one of his big contributions to the culture around creativity is he's just like, I'm just tuned into frequencies that are all there and I'm more sensitive to them. And things are just given to me. And I just know how to listen to the things that are already there. Meanwhile, everybody else is like a bunny on a hamster wheel, faster, 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 consume more, think more, be more productive. But there's a stillness and a calmness where things can just be airdropped and become obvious to you yes and i i it
0: um perplexes me how much people don't spend time one alone right like they're always doing something like i had this conversation with a pre- some president the other day. i said how much time a day do you spend thinking they're like thinking what do you mean i was like i'm just like sitting and thinking They're like no i'm always doing something yeah and i was like well i spend hours every day just thinking like i'll lie in bed and i think about things and I try to create space, like a vacuum in my mind, like not in a meditative sense, but like a space where like the all the busyness of all my thoughts can come together and solidify or, you know, be, come together in an interesting way. And I walk, right? Like I walk sometimes eight miles in the morning. And I think in that process of being alone and in nature, I also get into a different state where like there becomes, a, there's like the synapses fire and I see new thoughts or like in when I look at a flower, the sense is, is a very real caress, but like, and I'll look at a flower, I'll see some synergy of flowers, of colors. In that will like synergize some other thought in my mind. It's like, I'll see something that inspires me to put two and two together somewhere else. Like, I'm 100% open to that being like a divine, a different path of divine revelation. Um, but it's like having the humility to almost say like, I can't necessarily think myself into the answers. Actually, there's a great real, real quote about this, which I now can't remember. It's like, you can't necessarily always think yourself into the answers. You have to create space for the answers to come to you. Amen. And it's like, how many people are alone? Even when they're alone, they're on the phones, right? Like, how many people can actually sit with themselves and be alone for a long period of time? And I think when you can get to that state, like, the thoughts come much more easily. And it takes introspection and maybe reading these old, like, texts that people don't want to read. Um, but there's a humility there, right? Which is like, I have to sit and percolate. I mean, the,
1: the really perverse thing is how much I agree with you and yet how much I've tapped into this. Like... Yeah how hard it is even when I'm writing to just like, you know that moment when you're sitting down and you're working on something and you get stuck and you get stuck, like sometimes I'll just like open Twitter. I'll like check my texts. And it's like, why can't I just sit and just be with the thought? And in order for me to do that, I need to like carve out, like I need to be super intentional. I need to be like in a cabin, no internet. Yeah, I, because if I have any ability, to distract myself i will because it's so easy and it's like so alluring to my senses or something yeah. i don't know what it is
0: well it's just short term dopamine rewards right like you get those little dopamine hits from you know the you even the ux's of things are just so designed to like please people right yeah um but yeah i know it's scary but it's it's better in europe like i think it's just a cultural thing about, um, you know, media and entertainment being so much bigger here than it is in... Like the cult of celebrity is much worse in America than it is in European countries. And also in other European countries, there's still more of an appeal to beauty because it's, it's already there from history. Yeah. Like you walk around Vienna or Rome or London, there are buildings that surpass the age of America as a country. My school that I went to was built in the 16th century. Like, I mean, it's, it was at its 500th birthday. It's like no, 15th century. I don't remember but um, if you're surrounded by more beauty, you start to kind of uh, be grateful for it. Like when you walk around Italy, you're not like, man, I wish there were less churches and less beautiful things. But just by osmosis of being around beauty, I think you respect it more. And that this kind of like trashy, like cult of celebrity that's so short and transient in America is is a very Ameri- it's, it's definitely bad across the West. But I travel a lot. Like my parents, my mom lives in Istanbul. My um, other friends are in London. It's just so
1: much worse here. One of the things that I feel that we're missing is because of the way that we think about truth in school and the importance of logic, like prove what you're saying. We've lost deeper sorts of truths that aren't very careful in how people try to convey them. And like a good example of this is like Gerard. Rene Gerard is a super uncareful thinker. He's just sort of throwing stuff out there. Like it's not super empirical, but like his stuff is deep. And he's hitting on things that are beyond the realm of reason. And I feel like by trying to justify everything with scientific studies and by not even listening to what's pouring out of your soul and just having the courage to just put that on the page and having editors who are saying, hey, don't say that, hey, don't say this, fact checkers and all this sort of stuff. We're missing these this deeper essence of what truth could be in this revelation of the deepest parts of the human spirit.
0: And it's even worse than that. Like beyond just truth, it's also just like common sense. Like I call this, or I refer to this as the Church of Graphs, right? It's like the Church of Graphs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, graphs <laughs> in America, but the Church of Graphs. So I wrote this long essay. Well, not that long, but you know, documenting my following of the walking tour of Nietzsche, like where Nietzsche went on his walks. And a few weeks after writing this essay, there was some like academic study that came out about how like walking was good for you. Yeah. And I'm like, man, like, how much money and time was spent, like, making this essay, being like, we've got an abstract, it's like, this is the correlatory thing between, like, walking and being good for people. And I was like, the it's just, like, it's not that it's, I agree that we should question things, like, I'm not saying that we should, you know, take everything for granted, but the level that, like, people just know these, and we have to do our entire study and subscribe to the Church of Graphs, like, yeah, just go read Nietzsche, like, there's a lot of people in history who'll tell you, like, walking is good for you, right? But like we need to prove it with like a scientific team, we, like study the data, and it's like it's just so silly. So like walking is good for you. I was, like great. Like thanks for spending paying money on this. Like it's there's a common sense also that like has been bounded in history, that's like tradition and wisdom. That now we have to empirically prove. It's like the you know the uh, uh, traditions and thoughts have been passed on on generations that we doubt them all now. Like anything medieval has been completely disregarded. And Avicenna who wrote about medicine and the 11th century actually discovered germ theory but like no one cared about him because it was like it was many deep ages like no one cares and we're just disregarding entire things like don't fit into the current paradigms it's,
1: it's just wild you know occam's razor was it's now used as like this logical way to prove things yeah. william of occam was like a 14th century religious monk
0: did i not tell you this maybe you did i think i told you this i don't know i'm pretty sure i told you this
1: maybe uh? Maybe you tweeted it or something.
0: Everyone takes the Occam's razor, and they talk, describe it as like the law of parsimony, which is the like simplest explanation is the most is the, is the one that we should prefer, right? But if you read William of Occam, he was a hardcore theologian who was trying to use like logic and other things to justify divine miracles and things like this. Like his argument wasn't like the way it's been bastardized now to justify rationality. Yeah. is not what he was saying at all. And, and like he must be turning in his grave, like he was like, no, no, I was a theologian, you suckers, like I wasn't telling you. <laughs> like he was trying to point out that the most easy explanation is that it's God, yeah. right? That was Occam's positioning, not that like the simplest explanation from the data is correct. He's like, oh, well, it's probably divine miracle. But nobody reads William Occam. He's like, he wrote a lot of books. I actually have a bunch of them in Vegas. So, like they're very dense. Mm. But he's a theologian, not a rationalist.
1: How consciously do you cultivate your taste? Is that something that you're thinking about doing? I mean, you're clearly traveling and you're pretty intentional about where you travel, I I would guess. Is that something that you think about? Oh man, I feel like I was way more
0: cultured when I was like 11 than I am now. What? Yeah. What do you mean? I was like, I think when you're a kid, when you have more freedom to think, like I I was obsessed with classical music when I was young and I was wanting to study art and I had all these wild interests and I read lots of different texts and I do read them now, but I get refocused. Like now I don't read. Broad things like this. I don't even, it's like, it's just a difference of like being in school or not I think as well when right. you're in school I wish I could go into school now don't you kind of
1: wish oh it'd be amazing yeah I'm like
0: I want to study biology I mean I don't want to learn state schooling but to I have the
1: step with teachers either yeah.
0: no no I don't. but I just like the ability to go and like learn and I think as a kid I would find lots of things interesting and then you know I'd I go to classical concerts on my own as a teenager and now as an adult like you just end up having responsibilities right and then like your your taste you start to become kind of not hubristic but you start to define your taste as opposed to when you're younger. Like you're more open to like, you don't know what your taste is. So you start like learning about everything for the first time. We were talking about this um, last night at dinner. So like older people will pretend they know anything about wine, right? They sit there, they open the menu. They're like, I want this. one. it's like, you don't f- know what any of this wine. Does he can't read the names telling me about the wine? Mm-hmm. So we get stuck in our ways when we're older. So it's not like a conscious thing of me trying to specify my taste. But I think as I get older, I'm, I have less time and I like narrow it down to things I get interested. But I try and find ways to you know, usurp that. Like I went to an oil painting course last year and I can't paint, I'm a writer, not a painter. But I thought if I learned to paint, it might make me think in a different medium that might affect my writing. Did it? You know, I, well, the thing is, is I'm a really terrible painter, so you really didn't do great for my confidence, but it reminded me of something that you and I have spoken about before, about like writing being like word paintings, yeah. right? Like, you're only a painter, we both are pointillism, pointillism is in the art, of many dots and there's many different colored dots when you go up close, look like nonsense when you come away it's like a beautiful scene. And there's an analogy there in writing, right which is that the kind of writing that I you know resonate with and other people resonate with is a little less you know logical and rational. it's a bit more poetic really? in that writing, you know you you um, you are creating a putting forward a mood. it's much more like a word painting than it is like a argument. And that doesn't strike the heart of everybody, but uh, yeah, no, it's the it's the the, the art, I think doing other mediums of communication, expressing
1: yourself, so like obviously valid. You never just sit there and just look at something for an hour unless you're painting it. You almost need to paint it. Like the motion allows you, it gives you enough movement to see things differently, but focusing on one object gives you enough stillness to like have the depth. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing in writing. What the brain likes to do is it sort of likes to skip, right? Like when you're meditating, you go from this yeah. thing to this thing to yeah, this yeah. thing. But when you're writing, you're forced to stay in one topic. And you're perpetually frustrated in both activities. But then you look back at it after some time. You're like, I can't believe how deeply I just dissected that.
0: That was so well said. And I think is an argument for people to read Rilke. Was what Rilke does is he finds in little pieces that like he will talk about a flower or about something very simple. And he really notices fine details. And they are like, he to me is like the perfect art. He captured the art of, you know, word paintings. Um, but yeah, that kind of like, can you focus and notice, like increase your sensitivity yes. to something so simple. And then it can be quite overwhelming. I don't know if it was like this for you, but like one of the reasons why I can't watch mainstream media or like even really go to a restaurant anymore, but I guess that's like a bad thing to say, but. When you get sensitive to things, like when you're in the world of Rilke, contemporary society is very overwhelming. Totally. Like, I, I, I find it very hard to jump through different minds. Like, my place in LA is like a very old school greenhouse. There's no technology. Just have a bunch of books, loads of candles. And sometimes I'll go to like a restaurant in LA. And I'm like, I'm like so lost from this. Everything's screaming at you. Yeah. And it's just like, and it's like everything is loud. And yeah. And it's for people who are sensitive, right? Like, it makes you become introverted. And people don't realize that the introvert is not. Like people don't think of me as an introvert, but like I get really overly stimulated from going to different things. But there's such beauty in in taking those little like having the ability to to take notice of such fine details.
1: Totally. So what I do whenever I go to the shopping mall in Austin is I so I walk into the Neiman Marcus and I go to the different high-end areas. And my favorite high-end brand is Brunello Cuccinelli. Like I just love that yeah, yeah. guy. Like he's my business hero. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I'm like dissecting the cashmere and I'm like reading through the book and like the way that his book, the texture of the paper is so beautiful. And I probably spent 20, 30 minutes in there, just like really noticing the subtlety, like reading the tags and feeling them and all that. And then I instantly went to the Balenciaga section and it was an assault on my senses. Like I have like a mild grade of trauma from just that sharp transition.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, why is everything so loud now? And I was talking about this the other day with friends, but, you know, an interesting kind of um, corollary data point for society is what are the popular drugs of the young people? Hmm. In the 90s and the 2000s, think about rave culture. Think about Wall Street, right? It was like uppers. Yep. People were taking Coke, they were taking MDMA, they were doing like ecstasy. They were raving and partying and Wall Street was booming and there was dot-com bubble and all that stuff. Now... It's like, you look at the drugs that people are doing, and it's like alcohol, which is depressive. Yep. So like, you know, young people are smoking weed, which is also, you know, depressive. People, there's a lot of ketamine going on in society right now. But if you look at the Google Trends for ketamine, it's way up, you know, in different areas of it's being legalized, which is an anesthetic. So you have an anesthetic, alcohol, and then a lot, and if you're not, on, if people aren't doing those, they're probably, not everyone, but a lot of people also on SSRIs or antipsychotics. So you're in this position where, everybody is desensitized. It's like, the overwhelming things come first and the desensitization come after or are people desensitized and then they need the more loud things? That's a really interesting question. That's agree. great It question. could be the case that things are loud and people are actually way more overwhelmed than they realize. So they've lost their sensitivity. They don't know what's wrong with them. So they take all these depressants or so like depressive drugs. This thing about like what drugs people are taking is just very interesting to me. Like an anesthetic, like you're literally trying to turn yourself off from life. Culture is kind of weird now.
1: Yeah, we agree on that. Amen. <laughs> well, here's a transition. You have this amazing introduction, and I just want to break it down. You say the West is dying and we are killing her. We're proud to destroy our own freedoms and repackage failure as democratic progress. We champion our rolling out of red tape, the bureaucratic creep that strangles the nation's liberty, that American dream has been replaced by mass-packaged mediocrity porn, Encouraging us to revel like happy pigs in our own meekness. Yo, that rips.
0: Yeah, that was. I like that essay.
1: What's behind that?
0: Well, I, you to your point of like revelation. I wasn't didn't sit down and plan that essay. It was during lockdowns. It was COVID. I was looking out my window, at like you know, a world that had gone shut down and people were protesting. And it just, I wrote that essay in one go. It was, and it's emotional. It's because it, I think. The reason why I can write like that is that I'm writing about something that I genuinely care about. Mm. You can tell how much I care from how what I'm thinking about. It's like I haven't loosely thought about this. Like I was mad, right? And like in that madness, I thought, well, how can I express it? I was like, I'm not gonna go protest. And I was like, I'm gonna write it. And it, and again, everyone has people have different mediums, but in that medium, it just took out came out of me as like a pouring of my heart. Where I was like, what is happening to society? Like why are we okay with this level of mediocrity? And I think. If you can get to that point where you care so much, the writing comes very naturally. It's not like I had to think about the words or looked up the cinnamons or like what on the thesaurus.com. It's like, I, in, I felt it so intensely that it became like poetry to me because it came from my heart. Like I was just like, man, like I am so mad and upset about the state of society. Like I'm just gonna say it. And then when I read it afterwards, I was like, oh, it's a little edgy. Like maybe I should tone it down a bit. And I was like, nah, I should put out exactly how my heart wanted this to be. But yeah, I love that essay.
1: The core thing that you're saying there is just letting yourself feel that rather than rejecting it, right? Like we have something in society right now. Anger is bad. Vengeance is bad. Rage is bad. And like taking those emotions and just throwing them on the page, letting them loose. It's like spewing a cannon out of your soul. Like I'm all for that. But I don't think most people allow themselves to feel that emotion. And so they read a paragraph like this and they're like, how did you repackage that and all this sort of stuff? No, that's just like it was like uh like a like a volcanic eruption
0: yeah i'm not i'm just not desensitizing myself like the real core is, is like i'm not drinking too much i'm not on a bunch of drugs and i'm not on ssris and i feel like when you get to a very neutral state of and like living is hard it's like a a good a good phrase i tell myself is that um you got to experience you got to experience the lows to experience the highs mm-hmm. right like i'd rather oscillate than plateau like i'd rather feel how in the hardness of life, you can also then appreciate later the beauty, right? Like I was really upset when my father died. I didn't. I thought to myself, like, maybe I should take some meds, like, not grieve so much. I was like, no, I should feel this. I was like, this is an important lesson for me to understand and for me to feel. And uh, by not being desensitized, like these emotions come. But if you desensitize yourself, like, you it might be much nearer to the surface than most people if they like let it happen. If they realize that, like maybe they're over professionalizing, and people love authenticity. This is a this is a trade off, right? Because so people think to themselves. They have to fit into the overton window. They have to be professional, but what people are really missing in society, which is valued by a lot of by a lot of others, is authenticity. Like, can, you can't you can't read that essay and be like, she doesn't mean it. Like, I'm I'm clearly <laughs> authentic, right? Like, I'm I have strong views about politics. I mean them very deeply, and I express them in emotional ways. Um, and I wish more people would allow themselves to get there and have that freedom to take risks to like feel that emotion. Like, read Bukowski. I read The Tropic of Cancer the other day. You read Tropic of Cancer. It's like it goes from extreme explicitness, it's like a train of thought of like a man, like if you read F. Scott Fitzgerald, like Zelda Fitzgerald, like she was in and out of asylums, writing things like revenge to her husband, like it was so much drama, like there is such, <laughs> you know, ups and downs in these writing, like read Bukowski, man, like it's like you read contemporary poems now and it's like you must be kind, blah blah blah, It says tree to house, I'm just like what is going on, like you can't feel the emotion. Like you can't read Bukowski and think he's methodizing. He's not methodizing. You know he feels it. But uh, like I can't read contemporary. I don't read modern books anymore. So I'm just like, I don't f- believe.
1: I don't, it doesn't feel authentic to me anymore. What did you do differently writing for the film when you made Every Angel is Terrifying? What did you do when you made that? How did film allow you to tap into emotions? And how did you think about writing differently?
0: I didn't start that with the plan of it becoming a film. What happened was that I got asked to speak at the URBIT conference in Miami, right? And I hadn't made slides even the day before. Like, it was just like classic me, hadn't made any slides. But I care about certain things, right? And I don't need, like this, I don't need to overly prep. So I, myself and my friend, we, we, I, all I did was write bullet points of what I wanted to say on each slide. I made the slides, I gave the presentation, I'd, I'd seen the slides like an hour before and I delivered this like speech and but Mike Ma designed those? Yeah, Mike, yeah, Mike did it. Mike is amazing. Mike is, I think, the most talented, both one of them, a great writer and also an extremely talented artist.
1: Talk about someone who writes from the heart, authentic. Well, that's harassment like, architecture is a crazy book.
0: Yes, it is definitely crazy. But he in my mind um combines like the um the philosoph- the philosophy and freedom and self-sovereignty of someone like Ayn Rand with like um Bret Easton Ellis in like the 90s. Mm. Like Bret Easton Ellis, like when they wrote American Cypher, was also like an edgy book, right? Like it glorifies violence, all this kind of stuff, but it's fiction. Mark Myers is also writing fiction, but he's such a, it's so nice to read someone that's so free. Like there's no over-the-window respect there. And in that, like it's, it's like a, yeah, but, and my and my, I my, my, my worked on the slides. Like he also worked on the content because we have the same often crossover and philosophical views. And then that speech, which I delivered just in one go, having not practiced, went really well, like it had like a stunning invasion, People were very happy, like it moved people. And then we thought to ourselves like, oh man, this is a message that we should package. And the video that we made is just the speech cut down. Like there's, we didn't rewrite it. We took the recording of the speech. We cut out a lot of the stuff that was referencing to crypto because it's very specific to that audience. And we just left the philosophy and the history, but it wasn't written as a video. And actually I found it really uncomfortable. There's something much more personal about putting things in your own voice. And then as you probably know, and putting it on the internet than like hiding behind writing, right? Like I like to hide behind writing. I see words. I see the distance between myself and the words, mm. right? To do a voiceover in even a speech is not, and even sitting here is not what I how I feel comfortable. So I can't watch that video. Like I know that video people really liked it. Like I've had some people say it really moved them and made them rethink their life choices and all this kind of stuff, which I love, but I can't, I can't like as a writer I really struggle to hear it. So it wasn't written as a speech. It wasn't written as a video. It was written a speech, but yes, I'm proud of it. And I I hope more people watch it and it resonates with with people. But yeah, it was it was definitely not a normal experience. For
1: me. I mean, I loved it. Like the, and I'm not just saying that. Like I liked yeah. it so much that I had to go make my own short <laughs> film that was like, okay, inspired by this. What is it that I would add to the conversation and how would I da- Davidify this? Yeah, and I felt like that video that you made tapped into a dark energy that I feel a little bit that I hadn't really seen expressed, but then I wanted to, when I made You Were Made For More Than This, I wanted to start with that and then do what I like to do, which is provide like a very concrete cheerier solution for yeah. if you're stuck in this world, you're trapped on, you're trapped in your job, and you want to make something more of yourself, then you go right on the internet and through that freedom, meeting, influence. And I wrote, I remember writing, carve the path that only you can carve, live the life that only you can live, write the essay that only you can write. And for me, a sentence like that could have only come out in a video script. I would have never written that. Oh, interesting. Because of the poetry or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, we wanted to do follow up videos. Like I wanted to do more ones about crypto, but the, the cool thing actually about making video and turning writing into that format is that you know, people don't have attention span to read. It's not, like. Like we are saying, media is very cheap and very fast right now. To get people to read long essays is not as captivating as people hearing it and having moving images. And I think it's actually, it's something, I mean, yeah, you know, we both have, like we just use stock, we just use footage that we got from other places on the internet. Yeah. It's not like I had to go around with a film, like I didn't have to do all this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like me and Mai just sat and we just looked for, not directly the imagery that of what we were saying. It's not like I needed that. It's just something that picked up. It's like the word painting again. It's yeah. like what feeling does this sentence invoke and what is the corollary imagery? And to make that word painting be real in a film is a beautiful prop to like experience it. It made me really value like having good video editing skills. I was like, damn, you can make beautiful art this way. And I would love to make more. Like I, I definitely want to make more things like that because I think it just resonates much more strongly with a with a much with a younger and a much more broader audience in writing because people aren't reading. Like a uh, book consumption is down. People are reading short form, like even a long essay about like what you should do with your life or how you should think about it. It's just not as captivating think as a video. So I'm, I think we both have to just keep doing them, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah. Why well, are there more people like you in the world? Like you just, just even doing this podcast, like it's so fun to hear how generative and how distinct your ideas are. And like, you're, you're, there's just not that many people who have the freedom and I think the courage to reach beyond consensus and find, go explore new ideas.
0: Oh, well, I feel that's sad, and I hope more people will go and do fun research, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I I guess it's like, do you want to live a conventional path or not? Like, it's not even that. It's like, do you have the, like, I you know, I didn't grow up with, like, normal parents and, like, a normal life. Like I didn't really ever understand what normal, you know, things were, but people are so censored to kind of stay within these guardrails, right? Like, you refer, like, to what their career path is, what they should think about, what their relationship should be like, and, like, everything is up for reconsideration, right? Like, I've learned about science. I've learned about history. I've learned about all these things. And I don't know, I, I hope more people can be more curious. Like, there's a whole world to learn out there. Like, I find it so, cap- I wish I could never, s- if I dream situation, my transhumanist future, my <laughs> transhumanist dream is that I never need to sleep. And I can just be in front of a computer. I know this sounds ridiculous, but like, be by a computer in my books all day and just read. Like, it is so fun to just go, the whole human knowledge is out there for you to discover and to rethink about and apply to everything. It's like, Every solution to every problem has been written about in like different industries and different fields it's just sort of been blended together. It's like it's so cool like I don't know, I get excited and yeah I um I think as we've discussed before, if the problem starts much more young, curiosity is beaten out of you school, yeah. right like is really you're not meant to ask questions, you're meant to be obedient if you're not obedient then like you're in trouble so we have a problem which is that why aren't adults like this it's like only if you can get through the system I don't think it's that. I don't think it's people's individual's agency fault it's like The whole system's against you to stop you being extremely curious. Totally. Um, And that's really sad. And I hope more people just push past that just for for themselves and for their children.
1: I mean, I love this quote from you. I dream of many different careers, many different lives, many different loves, many different renewals of myself as if I was an immortal being who was able to experiment and explore across an endless timeline.
0: Right. It's like anyone says you should live as if you'll die tomorrow. It's like James Dean quote, right? Live as if you'll Live as if you'll die tomorrow. Dream as if you'll live forever. I don't remember anything exactly. Something like that. Yeah. But is it cooler to live as if you'll live forever? Because if you live as if you're going to, like, you plan your life, like, I'm going to live on average 85 years or whatever. It's probably way less than America now. It's probably like 30. but um, <laughs> Whatever the current life expectancy is in the U.S., um, if you tell yourself you have this pipeline, you're like, well, I'm gonna have one career, I'm gonna have one relationship that's meaningful, blah, blah. If you were to live, if you were immortal, there's a great book actually called Alan by Alan Harrington called The Immortalist, where mm-hmm. he just talks about what society would look like if you'd if you'd like got rid of mortality. I'm not campaigning for poor or against. It's just an interesting thought experiment, regardless of your views on longevity. If you live forever, you wouldn't have one job, right? Mm-hmm. You would probably do different things and experience stuff. And there's some level where it's like, I want to try with all the flavors of life. Like My first company was a toy store, right? Like, yeah. It's so far-fetched from what I've been doing the last 10 years, but it was probably some of the happiest years of my life. Kids came into this shop every day. We sold them toys. We taught them about entrepreneurship. I ran a philosophy class called Petite Plato's. It was so cute. Petite Plato's? Yeah. What was that? There's a philosophy school for kids. We ran it in the back of our toy shop. And that some, is awesome. Some of those kids are like still my friends. Like, there was one girl, she's got Hermione. She's now studying philosophy and theology at university like I was. And she came to see me in America. She's like 21 now. And like, you don't realize until you try different, completely different fields and completely different worlds and completely different cultures about like the beauty and the things you can learn. Like, I find it's crazy that some people just have lived in the same place their entire lives. Mm-hmm. But I went back to my high school reunion. And everyone was like still dating each other. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I was like, there's a whole world out there. How's it the chance that like, you all found the best people in this one moment of your life? And I just want to experience all oh, Like, Maybe it is the case that, you know, you found the best thing when you were eight, right? But like, I want to experience this. I want to live in Tokyo. I want to be a bus driver. Like, there's so many things I want to do. Like, I would love to be like a criminal detective. Like, I, I'm not going to probably have the time, but I'm going to go study them. Like, why not? Like, imagine just thinking about technology my entire life, like, I obviously love technology. as my most focused on interest because technology to me is pragmatic philosophy. Like it takes mm. philosophical questions and it answers them. But yeah, I want to do everything. Like I, I, that's why I care about longevity. It's like, I just selfishly want more time to like go do more fun things. Like people aren't having fun and life is so fun. Like I have a great time.
1: What is it that you see in reading that other people are missing? Because like, when most people think of reading, they think, oh, that's a boring activity. Meanwhile, you're like, my ideal vibe is sitting in a room with unlimited books, and I just get to like, bathe in the wisdom of great scholars.
0: Well, just, I think that uh, people just also don't disregard books if they don't like them. It's mm-hmm. like, don't force yourself to read books if you don't like it. Like, everyone's like, well, I don't really like this book, but I can read I'm like, well, stop reading but <laughs> like, like, I don't like reading I'm like, maybe that's, you're not finding the right books, right? Like, I was like, I don't know what my interests are like from the start, but I just start digging around and I look over here and I look over here and I'm like, ooh, that sounds interesting over there. But I might end up, I told you, I went to go read the New Testament and I ended up reading about New Testament manuscripts. Right. That wasn't set out, but I just followed my own curiosity. But people should just free flow. It's like, don't read what your friends are telling you to read or what the New York Times bestseller is telling you to read. Oh, definitely not that. Well, you know, all the bestseller books are like how to be more productive. It's all nonfiction about how to like, you're messed up and here's like nonfiction about how you can be less messed up, which is mm. a weird cultural, again, perverse thing going around that like, we all need like to be fixed. But it's like, go find things that resonate with you, right? And like, don't be embarrassed by it, right? Like who, I don't know many people was like reading Roka. I gave a copy of, it, of his poetry. Like, poetry is like a little cringe now on a society. People aren't like going reading poetry. I give copies of Duino you know, Elegies to most of my friends. A lot of them said were like really grateful. They're like, you know what? I've never actually read poetry, like not as an adult. Like I was in school. And I really resonated with this. It's like, go try it. Like, go pick up a poetry book. Like You might be surprised.
1: I feel like there's a thread that you've been pulling on for a few years now about scenes that we're missing about consciousness. You have this crazy story about when your aunt died or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I... Yeah, I, 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 two of my family members have died and like around the time, the exact time they exactly died, like I've had panic attacks. Like I've never had, I've never had like a panic attack. I'm more an anxious, super anxious person.
1: Which are, they
0: died and right before you had a panic attack. They died in Turkey, my cousin and my aunt, different times. And both those times was in the middle of the night in US time. And I woke up in the night and had a panic attack. Cheats. And the first time I didn't think of anything, the next morning I woke up and they were like, oh, your cousin died from a heart attack. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Like I woke up in the night and I had, a, I thought I was having a heart attack. The second time I was with my aunt, Um, And, like, there could be, you know, normal explanations for this, Um, but as I become more humble, right, so, like, science doesn't have the answer, and just to clarify how much science doesn't have the answer, in science, like, everyone's like, physics and the standard model, like, all this stuff, 95% of all observable reality is just labeled as dark matter that we don't understand. Like, could you not have a situation where people should be more humble than that? It's like, Hmm. all observable reality is 5% of what we can see. The whole rest of it, what we call dark matter, is just an unknown thing that, like, scientists can't figure out. So okay, well, maybe we should be very humble that we don't understand how things work. And I used to find all this, like, spirituality, energy stuff, like, kind of weird. I was like, I don't want to, like, turn 30 and do the thing everyone does. I was like, I've gone to Ayahuasca, and, like, now I, like, talk to a plant. But, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like, as you get older, if you're sensitive, you start to realize that, like, there are some things that, like, aren't explanatory. And I'm not making the cases necessarily about my panic attacks is, you know, they can be explained away. But if you're sensitive, you start to notice that there's a little, there's like magic. There's like some, you can tap into some it. It's not magic in the way that people think of it, but it's like serendipity and like synchronicity. And like, there's something where it's like very, it's, it's my, my boyfriend, I it's always like you, we call it something, we call it prop guy. It's like, you know, he's been touched by God. It's like there's a very unlikely chance of these exact things can happen. And they worked in certain ways. And in that humility, I, thought a lot about consciousness, and in post enlightenment thinking, everyone's like, consciousness is found in neurons, and the neurons fire, and that's how things work. Then maybe consciousness is non-localized, and it's everywhere, and we tap into it, and like, you know, Persic has this argument that you can, like, even rocks have some sort of level of preferences, like, the things are working towards. Um, and I've just become humble that I don't have the answers. It's not just saying I know what consciousness is. I'm just saying that I'm not fully brought in to the current paradigm, and questioning it is, like, total heresy. I tweeted once about the You know, I read an article saying like, oh, I said something I'm wrong, like I, you know, started to doubt materialism, right? Like I was like, yeah, consciousness seems a little weird. Like I I think we should be a little humble about it. Every AI engineer in like the world went, oh my gosh, look at this silicon bubbly VC who doesn't believe in consciousness. And I was like, no, I'm just asking questions. Like you can't prove, we don't have a proof of what consciousness is. So to be able to be that arrogant about it shows these like dogmas, right? There's like a certain post enlightenment dogmatic view of consciousness that you're not allowed to question. Which I think is also a problem with how people, people building AI. They're like, we're just going to build this language calculator and it'll become conscious. Like, you don't even know what conscious means, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this is just a problem with enlightenment and thought, which is, you know, something that we've talked about for a long time.
1: Yeah, I think it was in 19... I want to say 1945, but that year strikes me that might be off because that was right after the war. But there's a guy named C.P. Snow who wrote a book called The Two Cultures. And what he was trying to get at, not a book essay, what he's trying to get at in this piece is like, we're now dividing the humanities from STEM. And he was basically like raising the red flag, saying, this is not good. And I think that you can see how specialized everything has become and how much we're missing because of that. Like Einstein died with a book from like an Indian mystic right next yeah. to him on his bed. Marshall McLuhan, who was like a crazy media theorist, everyone's like, wow, he knew so much about that. He was like obsessed with Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. He was like a Christian scholar for yeah. years. And you just see this over and over and over. I mean, the classic example, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs goes out and does, you know, circles around Buddhism and does the typography. Like, that's sort of the cliche example. But there's something here about we've gone so much into specialization that we've sort of separated. Either you can be this logic person who works from the head or this humanities person who works from the heart, but you have to choose. Yeah. And there's so much that we're missing by creating this wall between them.
0: It's also extremely arrogant, right? Because like the scientific church, church of broths, right? You yeah. like, yeah. think about the current narrative around AI. It's like, we, people who've never thought about thinking, never thought about thinking, we're engineers. We've, we've thought about how to build things from the ground up using code. There's been a lot of philosophical thought on what is, like, what it talks to, like justify a belief. That's the field of epistemology. Right through, to, like, what it means to, like, define agency. And you have all these AI researchers now who are like, we've built this code and it's, we've anthropomorphized it in such a way that this language calculator is going to become conscious. I'm like, these are very loaded terms. These are very loaded terms that you haven't introspected on a lot we don't even know what those definitions mean. Like We don't have a collective definition of even what the word intelligence means. Mm-hmm. There's no single answer of what intelligence means. There's something that a spider can do when it creates a web that's intelligent, that's going towards a preference and a goal. We could bees and ants. Exactly. There's like murmuration and birds. There's many different types of intelligence to have the arrogance to say, if we can make it resemble our intelligence in this way, like to build these kind of very smart, very human sounding, you know, language calculators, because we can see ourselves in it, that is a primary form of intelligence. Like, I think something that's way more scary from an existential risk point of view is synthetic biology. Well, actually trying to build biological intelligence, right? Like how do we build organisms from non-organic matter? Like that to me is a little bit more like we should be thinking about that, as opposed to like, if we just keep adding thousands more training inputs to this giant language calculator, it's gonna walk out the screen and kill us. <laughs> <laughs> but it comes with this arrogance, right, of like, Everything is logical, and we are so in such a great paradigm in science that we figured out what consciousness is thinking. is. like no, we have like we don't have a definition of what the goal even is. We don't even know what intelligence is. That we're somehow going to get there, even though we don't really know what the goal is. So, yeah, the, Arab, the, the like current f- hubris in STEM to disregard the humanities that have been thinking about these questions for a long period of time. Like it's just it would just save much more time if people were talking to each other. Like. Every, I mean, a lot of the machine learning examples come from behaviorism. They used to in the past, like looking at like Pavlov's models and trying to understand like how you do reward functions. That was some of the beginning basis of machine learning. And then it kind of separated out and became much, much more about code and not even looking at mimetic behaviors in and anim- intelligent animals. But it's like this divorce, like you say, like, I mean, how much is that slowing down progress? This extreme arrogance between both camps, right? Like everyone needs to take a massive familiarity pill.
1: Yeah, as you think of the writing that you've read, how do you think handwriting to the typewriter, to the keyboard changes the shape of thought?
0: Oh, it's such a good one. It's something I've been thinking about for a while because I wanted to get a really good neat fountain pen. I was like, I oh, need, yeah. a, fountain. I need nice. a really good fountain pen. Um, but yeah, it's divorcing you from it. When you write with a pen, this is why I've been trying to reunite with, because in my school, I don't I just probably the same in the US, but I went to a very old school. Between four and 18, I had to only use, I was only allowed to use a fountain pen. Is that mm-hmm. happening in America? No. No, I didn't. Okay. So <laughs> everything that I wrote from 4 to 18 had to be, it was a school like law, like we had to write in founding. And then when you're writing, it becomes like a somatic experience, right? Like your handwriting is part of the art, how you do cursive, how you phrase your letters, like.
1: Look at Islamic calligraphy.
0: I know. And like medieval manuscripts. And there was a, there's a formality. The thing I love when I go look at these like old historical texts, including the New Testament manuscripts is that the how they display the words was also part of, like, the total whole of the writing. Yeah. Right? Like, they wanted it to be beautiful. Like, if you read avicenna's Kind of Medicine, which is an 11th century medical textbook, right? It has beautiful calligraphy. Try to imagine, like, a medical textbook now, like, having this thing. But it was a formality of, like, I am doing something. It's a legacy. Like, I'm showing up, right? It's the same thing about, like, why does everyone in LA walk around in a sports bra, mm-hmm. right? Because, like, nobody feels this need to, like, dress up and, you know, make an effort. But we've lost the respect for humanity. Like, it's cringe to try, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's cringe to try. Now everything's been reduced to when I read everything on a Kindle. Like, I admit, like, I take a Kindle around with me sometimes, but they still drive me mad because, like, I feel, like, divorced from the reading experience, and like, maybe because I'm just too old. But, like, you know, writing was meant to be, was was an art form, and now it's really not an art form. It's, like, mass market paperback or hardback. And it's, like, how do we bring back beautiful books? Like, think about, like, um... Uh um William Morris did the Canterbury Tales. Like, have you seen these books? Like, oh, it's just so beautiful. And it was like 19th century revival of like, medieval text with beautiful calligraphy and drawing. But like nobody has nobody respects it anymore, right? They want it as fast and as quick as possible. Um, but it's a shame. I think we're gonna get some return of this. It. Like we've gone too far, and like now some people are making beautiful books again. Mm-hmm. Because it's like they've gone so far that people are like, wait, actually, like we like some of the pretty stuff. But yeah, I'm I wanna, I wanna go back to handwriting with a pen for this exact reason, which is that I want to show up. To it and i think there's some level where when i type on a computer it's divorcing me from the formality of my own thoughts plus you can't delete it which is something that you and i spoke about right like a typewriter is also great for this like when you write and edit you get rid of things and you lose sometimes things that were very good um it's like jazz it's like jazz
1: yeah like (laughs) jazz flows and then you roll with the mistakes
0: yes exactly
1: when you're typing the mistakes Delete, 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 and so you lose the mistakes.
0: Yeah, and sometimes the mistakes, like you go back and realize they weren't mistakes,
1: right? The mistake creativity (laughs) is sometimes recognizing the best mistakes that you've made and actually building on them.
0: Totally. So you know, I I think we're gonna start seeing like I hope that there's and you start to see like even the fact that the videos that we've made have been have resonated with people that I think there's a slight backlash towards the over-indexing on technology for everything. I spoke to a nineteen year old the other day who like has his own history like essay competition he's wearing beautiful books and doing i was like okay like maybe there's a hope in the younger generation being like i don't want to be like those guys mm-hmm. like, they're all on tiktok and like we don't want to be like our older brothers and sisters so I'm, I'm
1: hopeful well it's funny because we were talking last night about these super high-end cars like higher end than lamborghini and ferrari yeah and the designer who's the head designer he draws by hand oh, before wow, yeah. he brings them into autocad and i was talking to another designer and he was in his mid-70s and I, I really respected the guy. I was like, hey, you know, when you look at stuff on Pinterest, stuff on Instagram, like, what do you think is the fundamental problem? And yeah. he sort of stops and he thinks, and he goes, that people don't design by hand anymore. When you yeah. design by hand and you have the ink that moves through, you have you have a texture, you have sort of this lack of perfection. Now he's like, when people design something, they start with templates, they start with things that they can copy and paste, they start within these invisible constraints that limit their thinking from the very beginning. And what's great about handwriting when you're writing, but in particular with modern design, when you have a pen, there's a boundlessness. You're only constrained by the eight and a half by 11 page itself. I think you see it in writing too. Like the idea of the spirit has died. Like how often, do most people think of the spirit? Like, does this piece of writing, is it spirited? Is it alive? And I think you see the same thing in houses. It was funny because my friend sent me a Zoom screenshot. It was all these people on this grid and people just working at their houses. Every single one of the screenshots had bare white walls. Yeah. There were like 12 people in the screenshot, all white walls. I'm like, where is the spirit? Where is the distinctiveness? Where is the personality? How are we Stripping the world of life time and time again. And I think you see it in writing, but it's hard to see there. But you can see the residue of this dilution of the human spirit in architecture and painting and aesthetics. And I'm just like, what is happening?
0: I know. And I, I so much more, even a contrast, if you spend time in Europe compared to the US, right? Which is that the US has become hyper minimal. It's almost like egalitarian. It's almost aesthetic, right? Which is that it's embarrassing or. To be ostentatious, or to have any kind of, you know, um, outburst of creativity, or and it, to make an effort, it's just cringe. Like it's cringe to look like you care and you try. You want to look like you don't care, which is like the Balenciaga, like Vetements thing that you talk about earlier. It's like we literally put young people in trash bags and charge nine hundred dollars, and it's like you're just showing how much you don't care, yeah. right? And you're paying a lot to it. price So it's like I'm rich and I don't care, which is like the main message of fashion yep. r- right now, which is weird. Like look at the '90s, like. When we were dressing out, the supermodels they looked up to. It's like, there was a different kind of like prestige. Like there was a meritocracy. And this is back to the point, like, why don't people like it? Well, beauty, Plato's quote, beauty is a natural superiority. It plays to meritocracy. Like there is some objective standards of beauty. Like people want to not say it, but there's, when people go to the dentist, they all want more symmetrical teeth. They're not like, you know, I want one tooth this way and one tooth this way. There are objective values of beauty. There is you know symmetry, there is complexity, there's elegance, mathematical elegance. So you can see in a mathematical formula also represented in a flower. And that flower has a symmetry that is based on math and art and so many things. And now like people just kind of like disregard all of these things. It's like, there's no such thing. We don't want to have superiority. Things call me be better. Like, everything must be the same. And this is what Nietzsche spoke so heavily about. This is his last man argument, right? Which is that the last man wants to be like everybody else, right? And the madman who is just trying to like be an individualistic person. And that's why like everyone hates Ayn Rand so much. Like why do people hate Ayn Rand so much? It's like Mm -hmm. a nice Russian woman who like, she had arguments like, people should listen to her talks on America. She has this talk on American businessmen, which I listened to the other day. And she's just saying like, they should be great. They should people should look up to them. Like they should be the models of society that people want to embody their characteristics and values. And everyone's like, she's awful. And I'm like, what? Like you want to have shitty leaders? Like, I think it's good if they have virtuous qualities. But this perverse and extremely dominant view that, you know, any kind of meritocracy is bad works against our entire, you know, aspirations as humans in progress. Like, there are natural hierarchies. Denying them is denying science. Like. There's natural hierarchy. Some things are more beautiful than others. Like we should celebrate it. Like I don't care that I'm not the world's best painter, but I love going and seeing Monet's painting. I'm not like damn that guy. Stop painting, right? Like <laughs> it's crazy. It's like it's fine. It's not my skill, but we now everyone has to be equal in this egalitarian world. There's no space for
1: beauty. What do you get from spending time in Istanbul? Um, Besides seeing your mouth,
0: what do I get? Well, I learned a lot about why I don't want to live. Why how countries should not be dysfunctional. Right. it's like an extremely dysfunctional country but it's that istanbul have you been you've been to istanbul no it's incredible because it's a place where the east means the west right it's half european and it's middle eastern and there's islamic and there's european a like, half is literally europe and you know you i cross from my hotel in europe to my mom's house on the asian side every day by boat so i literally cross across the continent oh that's cool and you just start to realize like um i mean The Ottoman Empire is also really cool. The history of Istanbul is incredible. We just listened to the Fall of Civilizations podcast on the the Byzantine Empire. Really good, highly recommend. Um, But it's just, there's a lot of legacy and a lot of history there and you can't help but be humbled. And also to experience different faiths. I'm not Muslim. Some of my family members are Muslim, but to hear the course of prayer five times Mm. a day or how many times a day really stops me to pause and reflect. It dices up my days. It reminds me what it must have been like in the medieval period when you had church, like you had the, you know, um, matans and like the, and the, that's how the clocks were, it comes from the church, right? They would definitely have the time with like bells. Yep. Um, so in, in an Islamic country like Turkey, and to have a different way of like breaking up the day, hearing things, ring like this kind of stuff, it just reminds you that like there isn't just one way of living. In America, everyone's like obsessed with clock time. In Istanbul, you hear the five course call, like, of prayer and that separates your day and it causes you to reflect. It's just a, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place to visit. It's not a beautiful place to live because it gets very frustrating, but just the history there, like the old Osman Palaces, uh, they're just, they're, they're built, 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 like the 16th century to spend what would be equivalent of a billion dollars. Like they really were obsessed with detail. There's no, like they they definitely, they're definitely maximalist.
1: <laughs> you know, this is interesting. Like the obsession with detail, the maximalist. like that's one thing I love going for in my writing. Like my favorite part of the editing process is looking at what I've written and basically trying to like add vibrancy to individual words and sentences and try to create, like, I'm such a maximalist. I just love to like, for me, the peak of writing and visual aesthetics is like, how do I make things maximalist while still retaining their coherence and while still retaining a sense of elegance? Like what I'm always teetering on the edge of is maximalism, but it sometimes gets confusing and now it gets messy and stuff like that. And I'm always trying to find that balance and I just feel like the soul at least like the expressive part of ourselves like we want to show maximalism we want to show like the depths the contours of our personality and like minimalism is a suppression of all that to come back to the yeah. drugs that you were talking about
0: yeah and i, I really if people want what empirical evidence of the case just look at every how expensive half list for sale in los angeles right now they look exactly the same and I, it's just so crazy like look at Wealth of the past at like the William Randolph Hearst. Look at the Hearst, Hearst Castle.
1: Hearst Castle, incredible, I, it's insane. Yeah,
0: and you know he wasn't even just a, like a newspaper magnet. Like he collected antiques. Like J.P. Um, uh, Morgan. He bought. If, if people his library. We were, his library is my favorite place. Like yeah. it is such a stunning homage to books. He has you know leaders in the printing press like on the walls
1: even just like the balconies and like the decoration on the balcony in that place and like the color of the mahogany is gorgeous
0: and like he was an industrialist like people think he was a banker right like i've ever seen jp morgan but if you go look at his library and then look at the he collected medieval manuscripts he actually i think died on like an archaeological dig like he went he himself went to archaeological quests it's like these people in the passing we read people's diaries they didn't just do one thing. They had all of these varied interests because education wasn't so siloed and like like it wasn't so fixed that you were meant to do one thing at the end of it. It's like the great industrialists of our ages, the Hearst, the J.P. Morgans, were very interesting characters who had a lot of like what you were saying about people being interested in esoteric philosophy and like Steve Jobs and for example. But like now, like everyone just lives with these very narrow views and. I'm so inspired by the JP Morgans of this world. They like cl- They cared about these things. Like they realized that it was important to learn from the past, learn from history. He lo- obviously loved books, so he like, can't go into that place. It's like a book church. And then you go to Italy, right? And like, I remember being in hearing all the stuff around like geopolitical risk, like a, like a year and a half ago. And I was in Rome, and everyone in Rome was like drinking red wine and eating pizza. So they weren't talking about like that. Older countries have seen many phases of revolutions and countries come and go and like, blah, blah. America is still so new. And there's some level like we have to stay how it is and we have to keep everyone subdued and like keep them within the system. But yeah, I think if you could change a really weird way to in- increase cultural self efficacy in America is just to make it harder for litigation. And I think you would stop seeing so many warning signs and people would relax. And in that period of breathing and stillness they would find more creativity.
1: Am I hallucinating or did you do a Federalist paper rabbit hole?
0: I did, yeah, yeah. I did do that, yeah. And
1: what'd really you fun. pick up about the writing style of the forefathers of America? Um, that they were very deep philosophical people. <laughs> Not like any politician now. Like, you read the Federalist
0: papers and the Anti-Federalist papers which also interesting. And hmm. if anyone interested in like uh, early American like, founding history, I did a fellowship at the Claremont Institute. And the yeah. Claremont Institute is unbelievable. It was like 10 days and... Orange County, where we, all we did was sit with scholars and learn like the Federalist Papers and the Constitution. Even more fun for me, because I'm not from this country, so I learned it for, like from scratch, right? It's like, we, I didn't learn about this in school, we just learned about like Henry VIII. So I learned all this stuff and I was like, wow, like there was a lot of book print to this, right? Like they, were, they thought about things, They like, all you did was actually printed, the Federalist Papers were printed in newspapers as debates, right? Like it was like, Federalist Paper, and then, you know, the, the response to that, and it was very thoughtful, and it was pro-liberty, and it was grounded in values, and it was very well-considered. And you compare that to political discourse now. Like, I watched the midterms, like I, I was way too involved with thinking about politics in 2020, and last few years of have disengaged, I was like, I don't understand what's happening. But I watched the midterms, like, people can not even string a sentence, and that's fine. Like, everyone's like, well, that's fine, they don't make any sense. If you read the Federalist papers, it's extremely humble that these people cared. They really, really cared. And it made me respect America a lot more of like what its founding history was and why it was so based and rooted in liberty. I was like, man, I wish more Americans like I'm surprised how few actual Americans have studied the Federalist Papers. Like I'm English and I've studied the Federalist Papers, but they haven't. But I think it kinda of goes against the grain of contemporary education to go back and read that stuff because you can see what the decline is, right? Like really, like this doesn't even make sense. Like does not make sense. It's just very erudite. So it was it was very humbling to read it and it gave me a lot of respect for The american political founding
1: and and the minds that came to it it was it was very fun last question if you were to design a curriculum about teaching writing what wedge into writing education would you have i would guess it wouldn't be around spelling and grammar
0: I was like, is that a diss on the fact that i am really bad at spelling and grammar? But no.
1: no.
0: <laughs> I was like, how do you
1: know? I'm just like, you're going to have a, cr- I'm terrible at it too.
0: My sentences are always just too long. Like that was like my thing. Like I, I, it's a train of thought for me. So like I always just write and I'm like, this sentence is like seven paragraphs. It's just one train of thought. But you have to be free, right? What are you injecting as well? Well, I just think people aren't studying the cl- like classical text enough. I feel I'm very fortunate now as a, a person in my thirties. I went to a very old school, school in England. Where we got taught Latin and Greek by default we got taught Latin and we studied classical Roman texts like we had to it wasn't like a choice right like here in America like you can maybe learn that if you pick it up and if you read Euripides or like poetry if you read the Odyssey right which I'm sure you have or the Aeneid in that which is in my on my mind like the next like the next level of foundational books after like the Bible right it's like go read other stuff that's been around for a long time and Euripides and these other great Greek writers, including Homer, did something very similar to Ayn Rand. They took characteristics and qualities of what they think humans should be like or not be like and put them in characters. Yep. You read Euripides, it's similar as Shakespeare does the same thing. It's irrelevant it's in any era that you read it. You use the same thing, like, she loves him, he loves that, she's not being noble, traitor Like, humans haven't, the context has changed, but human drive hasn't changed. Like, we're, we still have the same drives, we just find different solutions. Same that right. And to go read Euripides in probably the same way that you you are doing with the Bible, it's like you go back and you realize like ah oh, like everyone's had the same questions and been thinking about the same time from a writing perspective. I think it gives you humility, right? So like I'm not old, I'm not living in the greatest moment of human intellect, right? Like there's things for me to learn from the past, there's things for me to appreciate about the present, and in that humility, I find my voice, right? Like it's like a respect for that, and I just don't think people are reading old enough texts enough. They're not. Going back, it's seen as like boring. I'm like, damn, that's lost it for 2000 years for a
1: reason. Yeah, it was funny. We went out to dinner last night, we're in downtown LA and it was about a 10 minute walk downtown. And it literally felt like a scene of I Am Legend. I felt like if I'd been there an hour later, we walked at sunset. I felt like we had walked an hour and a half later, we would have been murdered. I mean, there was no one on the streets. It's totally dead. We're driving back from dinner after, and the driver's like, I cannot believe what has happened to this place. There's no life on these streets. Yeah. And he drops us off, and there's this beautiful lobby. It must have been built 1920, but between 1920 and 1928. It just has that almost like deco exterior, but then also like that Art Nouveau life and vibrancy to it, like that detail. And I just look at it like, wow, that is magnificent. And then you just sort of look at the streets, and like the paint is chipped, and there's no care to the outside, and just the juxtaposition between what you have inside—something that was built 110 years ago—and the outside, like these decrepit, sad, lifeless streets. I was just like, what? And I'm like, if that's not a motif for what's happening right now yeah. with the decline of the creative spirit, I don't know what is.
0: Yeah. Drum roll. <laughs> End so of podcast. True. It's true. <laughs> Well, we'll That's be- why you should end it. That's totally amazing. It's exactly. I totally agree. Yes.
1: That was a blast. That was a blast. Thank you. That was fun.